Today, we're lucky to be joined by John Neat. John is the founder and CEO of the 22 Location Strong coffee chain, JJ Bean, based out of British Columbia and Ontario, Canada. Today, we dive into how JJ Bean created its brand gravity, how a company that's anti-marketing does marketing, how he structures his leadership team, and much more. Let's get into it. Welcome to Guest Getter, the best place for restaurateurs to learn the art and science of getting more new guests, getting guests coming back more often, and getting guests spending more per visit so that you can be more profitable and do more of what you love. My name's Kyle Guilfoyle. Let's hit it. John, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing fabulous. Thanks for having me on. Mm, my pleasure. I'm very excited. So, John, I always like to, to start with the same question, which is, how would you describe your specific area of expertise or your zone of genius? Hmm. Um, I certainly don't think it's a zone of genius, but I would say my gift is probably in uh, negotiation. I, I do well with that. Um, it's not always the zone of genius, though, because sometimes you have to worry about what you get uh, and you can negotiate hard and you actually get what you want. And then you realize a few years later, huh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Well, I mean, that, that leads me to my next question, which which is what what is one thing about negotiation you wish you had learned years ago? Um. I guess uh, something that I started a number of years ago, and I, I copied it from Jimmy Pattison. I heard of several, everybody's got Jimmy Pattison stories. I mean, the guy's been around forever. But uh, a friend of mine who used to work for him said, you know, what Jimmy does is that every good deal starts with no. And it's amazing how often I people have approached me about something and I'll just say, no, no, that doesn't sound like it'd be good for us you know, like something like that. I don't just say no straight, but I'll just say, no, that doesn't sound like it'd be good for us. And it's amazing how often then people come back and then they're on a different footing from the negotiation spot because now they're trying to convince you. Mm. They're trying to convince you that this is going to be something really good. And even then you just go, well, it does sound interesting, but no, I don't think so. That, that's not a good enough deal for us. So, so you actually force the other person to do the negotiation you know like instead of you saying these are my terms mm -hmm. they they come back with terms actually often that are better than you'd even consider well isn't isn't there a, a book that's all about that isn't it called yeah. getting past no yep it is yeah uh, i have read that as well but it is difficult to put that in practice and you have to be i guess the big thing is you have to be a desired commodity so you can't just start a new business and go, oh, okay, I'm going to just say no to everybody. Well, because you're not going to be wanted. It's like, you know, being a very pretty woman and all sorts of men ask her out. <laughs> like, it, well, I, I guess we can't really talk about this, but I think you know what I'm saying. Like if, if you're not attractive in some way, no one's going to want you um, as a business. And well, so. I'm, so I'm really curious how, how do you go? Are there things that you can do to engineer uh, that that attraction? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, in the business world, that is being, uh, you know, going concern. I mean, doing something really well. Uh, but it's also offering you can now you no. I mean, unless unless you're desirable, and the only way you can really be desirable is being something that somebody wants. Mm-hmm. In order to be something that somebody wants, in terms of uh, what I'm talking about as a landlord, or someone wants your brand, um, you've got to be showing some level of success. And totally. so then you basically, so then how do you get success? Well, then you basically that starts from the ground up and we'll be talking more about that. I'm sure. hundred percent. And so, yeah, let's, let's, let's go back to, uh, to sort of, you know, the, the early days for you. Uh, I, I know that you grew up in the coffee business. Your, uh, your grandfather started Neat Coffee, I think in 1945. And, yeah. uh, what I was really curious about that is, you know, what impression did the coffee business make on you? at a young age such that you wanted to make it, you know, a, a major part of your life's work. And you're assuming that I wanted to make it part of my life's work. Uh, well, well, what, what caused it to become such a major part of your life's work? So my grandfather and my father were both in wholesale coffee. So we sold coffee to restaurants, but the big part that we also did is we supplied all the equipment, the coffee brewing equipment. And the way my dad and grandfather did really well against these large conglomerates like the General Foods of the world and Nestle of the world was personal service. And back then, no one had cell phones. So if you really wanted to give personal service, you had to give out your home phone number. So all through my growing up, my father would get phone calls at all hours of the night, most times I would say three to four times a week. Um, and someone would say, hey, I tried to phone your office, but nobody's there. Like they'd be phoning at eight o'clock at night. <laughs> Duh, no one's there. Uh, but I, I'm out of coffee. I need coffee right away. You know, like we're, we forgot to order today and uh, I need coffee. And so my dad would, would say, okay, I'll, I'll get it over to you right away. Uh, machine was broken down in the middle of the night. We have to have it fixed tonight because we're opening, you know, six in the morning and there's line up at the door. Everybody has to have their coffee. So my dad and my grandfather were both so service oriented and they built the business on that service um, that they were always available. And as a kid, you know, because my dad actually, you know, would miss coming to my sports games. He would, um, you know, not be home or whatever. I thought I I resented it in a lot of ways. And so the expectation was that I would join the business because my grandfather did it and, you know, my dad did it and I was next. Uh, I had a twin brother, this is kind of sad, but I had a a twin brother um, who was really interested in the business and was was kind of my dad's favorite. Um, But he died at uh, 19 or 18 years old. And which broke my dad's heart, of course, and I was pursuing social work. So I was working with delinquent kids. I was going to school for it. And at uh, 22 years of age, my dad said to me, hey, John, um, would you be interested in joining the business? Because if you don't, I'm thinking about selling. And I said, Dad, I, I don't really, I'm not into it. I'm not into coffee. He said, look, give it a year. Give it one year. If you don't like it, 
I'll sell the business. And uh, I loved it. I realized actually that I, I didn't know that I was good at selling stuff. And that's what I, you know, within a year and a half, I was in the selling part of mm-hmm. coffee. Um, and I really loved it. Well, that, yeah, I mean, you, you probably uh, picked up a few things watching your, your, your grandfather and your dad do it uh, along the way. I'm, I'm really curious about that one year and, and what, what changed your mind and what caused you to fall in love with it. Yeah, my, my dad was very smart uh, the way he did it. Um, he wanted me, so he said, okay, you're going to start working in the back. And I thought, oh. Like you're trying to convince me to work in this company and I have to pack coffee, you know? So I, you know, pack coffee for probably three weeks. And he said, okay, now I want you in the office. And that was before computers. So I had to learn all these manual processes. So I was in the office for three or four weeks and uh, which drove me crazy. I hate working in the office. Um, and then he said, okay, I want you to learn how to fix machines. So that took about three or four months um, to learn how to fix all the coffee machines. And then he said, I want to show you how to cup coffee, how to like to taste what you need to look for. So I spent all this time with the roaster and learned all that stuff. And at the end of it, I thought, this is actually a really interesting business. I thought it was just my dad smoozing with these customers and looking after them, but it is really interesting. And I, I just got interested and I got I, I a little bit of a... <clears throat> A little bit of guilt thing too, because my grandfather was sick. Um, my father, my brother had died, and it was like, oh man, if I if I say no, then we lose the family business, and it's on me. So, it was a, but but I did enjoy it. So, well, I'm 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 sort of relieved that you uh, you, you fell in love with it. Um, I'm I'm also curious about the. Um, the the service aspect that your 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 dad had where he would just always be available and it, and it actually kind of reminds me of what we opened with which is you know uh, being wanted uh, and and being sort of you know a, a a going concern and a hot commodity so yeah. to speak does does any of that live in uh, JJ Bean today for sure it does mm-hmm. yeah sure um, just a little backstory <clears throat> so. I always, my dad always took the idea what, because the relationship was so strong that he could basically charge anything he wanted for coffee. Mm. And so our competitor, this was an interesting thing. We charged on average about $2 a pound more for our coffee than anybody else did at that time. Um, And we got away with it because we were, you know, like Cactus Club, I think, calls himself the House of Yes. And my dad was the House of Yes way before that. And he, whatever anybody wanted, he would say, not a problem, you know. And so when you get that kind of response, like versus today, you phone a company and say, can I have this? Uh, no. Uh, can I have this tomorrow? Uh, maybe. Can I have it tonight? Absolutely not. <laughs> like, so like the fact of, just his attitude was whatever you need, I got you covered. Um, which able enabled us as needs coffee to charge more for our customers. Cause all, all those service things cost money. Of course, like my dad would, <clears throat> he was 
uh, he was the old days. Everybody had big wads of you know cash in their pockets. Like all, all the, I remember all the Greek restaurants. They'd all pay with cash. Like they pull out this big wad and they count out hundreds of dollars in, in money. It was like drug dealers you see in the movie. Everybody did it because a lot of guys in the restaurant business had you know a double till system. Mm-hmm. So anybody that paid cash, it'd be back then almost. I'd say 90% of the stuff was cash and the rest was checks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it moved to credit cards and stuff. But, but back then there was no credit cards. Like 1979, when I joined my dad, there was, there was no credit cards out there. Mm-hmm. So everybody either paid cash or checks, but a lot of guys couldn't balance checkbooks. So they just, the way they balanced things was just, okay, I got my cash. On the my cash. If I got enough money then I can pay my bill. So yeah. Um, but my dad used to do some of our same ideas. So we had a couple of servicemen and then I of course became service person as well because I knew how to pick, fix the equipment is we would go like, uh, there was a really great restaurant called the cannery restaurant. So the cannery restaurant, which was on the pier, which Bud Kank was one of Bud Kanky's first before Joe Forte's and they would call us and they want a machine fix. So my dad would say, John, uh, go to the cannery. Here's a, here's a hundred bucks. Get, um, get a smoke link on it while you're there. <laughs> or the next morning, he'd like, he'd like flash his money. He would just like, he did it with everybody. So that sounds awesome. I know. So the, so the fact of the matter is like, you could never say no to him because he was so generous. It was like my dad just, guilted the heck out of me because he was so generous to me all the time. And he was so generous to all our employees. I was there 11, 11 years. We sold Nestle after, uh, we sold Nestle after 11 years. That's an, another story altogether. But at that time, I think we had 13 employees and I was senior to one. Like everybody loved my dad. Everybody stayed there. And so we had that loyalty of his, not only his customers, but also his staff. And he would, he would go to a different cafe that we supplied almost every day. And he knew that, well, every day for sure, he had this incredible routine, but he knew who had the best donuts, uh, French custards, Copenhagen's, uh, cookies, butter tarts. Like he had his list in his head of the best places in the city and we supplied them all. And if we didn't supply them, he basically bribed them until they bought from us because he wanted to buy their butter tarts so then he would bring a dozen of these things every day to the office every day first his first call was 10 in the morning get the office at 11 but he'd bring a dozen of these things like everybody was the size of houses because we ate so many sweet things but what kind of boss does that today like every day dropping in and getting this stuff for you so then when the guy asks you a favor Say, hey, uh, hey, I'm sorry to bother you at home, but, um, you know, this, this restaurant, Joe's and Flo's needs a machine fixed or they need some coffee. And you go, hey, no, no problem. So he, it was that whole kind of idea you hear about it in a marriage, like, uh, okay, if you, if you put lots of deposits in the bank in a marriage, then every once in a while, you can take out a withdrawal. My dad was totally about making deposits all the time so that when he took the withdrawal, no one flinched. Totally. Yeah, really, I mean, it, really cool. 
it uh, it reminds me of uh, of Robert Cialdini's first uh, first principle of persuasion, which is uh, reciprocity. Um, if you yeah, if you if you if you lead with you know by by giving folks something, chances are they're they're going to feel uh, some form of obligation to to give you something back. Sure. Uh, and okay, well before before we carry on, I I gotta ask. It looks like you have a big picture of an orange crush logo. Yeah, 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 right behind here. I'll give you a better picture there. So yeah. I got what's that? What's what's that about? Okay, my <laughs> first my first deal. Like a lot of people have sports jerseys and stuff in their office, <laughs> and I'm just kind of a little eccentric myself. So when I started JJ Bean. I bought it and it had Powell Street and Granville Island. Those were, it was called the Coffee Roaster. And then my first big deal was Commercial Drive. And so I took over Commercial Drive store at 6th and Commercial, but it wasn't the store that you see today. Right on the corner was a place called Ann's Grocery. And then right beside Ann's Groceries was it's called Terra Fazione Coliera. And that was the location that I ended up getting. But it took me about three years, but I convinced the landlord to sell me the building and he owned the grocery and the coffee shop. Like he actually owned the building, not the businesses. And it was, it was such a sweet deal. I mean, it is, uh, 20 years ago, but I paid $230,000 for that corner. Mm -hmm. So on that corner was um, Ann's Grocery. On one side was Ann's Grocery. On the, They had a big sign up there. One side was Ann's Grocery. The other side was Orange Crush. <laughs> the Ann's Grocery sign was a little damaged and faded, but the Orange Crush sign was in really good shape. So... I took it out and um, it's actually the only thing I have hanging in my office. But, <laughs> but I got a smile every time I look at it. So it's one of my favorite soft drinks when I was growing up uh, too. Um, okay. So uh, let, let's, let's say, let's say someone knocked on your door and uh, they, they wanted to open up a thriving coffee business in say the next three to 12 months. Right. What, what advice would you give that person? The first thing I would ask them is, how are you going to open up a thriving coffee business? <laughs> like, okay. How is it going to be thriving? That, that's what I would ask them. Um, because everybody wants a bit, they're assuming it's going to be thriving, but I ask them, why do you think your business is going to thrive? Hmm. And I would just say that from a curiosity point of view, because most people come at it with that approach. They have this total optimism. And then the next question I had asked them, I said, how long have you worked in coffee shops? Mm -hmm. And it's unbelievable, Kyle, that a number of people said, well, I've never worked in a coffee shop. I go to coffee shops all the time. And so then I'll say, so do you know what it's like to stand 10 hours a day behind a counter? And then again, there'll be a blank. Well, if it's too difficult, I'll just get someone to do it. I said, okay. Um, and how are you dealing with, how are you at dealing with problem customers? And they go, what do you mean? I go, well, probably five out of every hundred customers is a real problem. And then what I mean, so I tell them different stories about, you know, I'll give you five stories right now, you know, of customers. 
And you're going to have to deal with that. And now let me tell you, how many employees have you ever managed? So then, so I will ask them those things and I go, how are you? The next question will be, how are you better than Starbucks? Hmm. What are you going to do that's better than Starbucks? Because if you're not going to be better than Starbucks coming out the gate, no one's going to come to see you. Right. So Starbucks has, you know, 12,000 stores, they have process, they have great design, they have fabulous machines, they have great training. What are you going to do? Well, I'm, I'm curious, are there, are there any opportunities that are obvious to you that, that I don't want to say low hanging fruit, but like thing, things that don't exist in the marketplace too much, but if they did, they they would probably work well. Does that make sense as a question? Uh, I think so. I think the low hanging fruit, but it's very difficult. The areas, almost every great business, the areas of entry are difficult. Mm -hmm. Very few, most coffee companies think, well, I'm gonna open my own roastery, okay? And I'll roast my own coffee. But what they don't understand is that most customers don't care where their coffee is roasted. What they care about is the coffee tastes good. Like when they leave the store with the coffee in their hand, they don't remember where, in many cases, where that coffee was roasted. Um, what they do remember is the food. And the number of people that don't do their own food is unbelievable. Like the number of places that are op wanting to open a coffee shop and all they think about is nerding out on coffee. Oh, I'm going to get this $30,000 espresso machine. It'll do this. It'll do that. And I can temperature control everything. And the Kenya I bring in will be, you know, it'll explode in people's mouth. The thing is, is the, the nerds in any industry are very small compared to the number of customers that you need. Yeah. You do want, so my philosophy is, and actually a guy named David Labastar that started, not started, he was the major guy behind MEC. Um, he took their, through their whole growth curve and everything. Unfortunately, he didn't end well. Uh, it was a bad, I don't know if you know about MEC with what's happened to them there. They ended up selling and all that stuff. Anyways, David was and is around and he's a brilliant guy. And I told him, I said, you know, what I want to focus on is espresso. I want to have the best espresso of anybody out there. I want to have the best espresso. I want to have the best espresso decaf. <laughs> and it only represents <clears throat> less, it represents less than 10% of my customers. But if I do a solid espresso, so I wasn't thinking about roast, I'm not even talking about roasting, I'm talking about getting a great espresso blend, which I was doing as well, but that was not part of the conversation. So I'm sticking to this, this theme about what people remember. And so we spent a whole bunch of time getting the right blend for our espresso. It was a fabulous espresso. Everybody that we gave it to thought it was amazing. But as you know, most people drink cappuccinos and lattes. Only a very small percentage drink espressos. What about drip coffee? What's that? What about drip coffee? Oh yeah, yeah, drip coffee too. But it's, it's harder to distinguish yourself with just, anyway. Drip coffee is important too, but let me, let me get to why I wanted to focus on espresso. And we did this for a number of years. 
And so when customers came in, they'd say, I'll have an espresso to go. And we'd go, nope. What do you mean, nope? You're going to drink the espresso here because it's better in a cup. It's an ounce and a half of liquid. Take the time, drink it, enjoy it. And uh, people would always be a little, what are you talking about? And I said, no, please try it. Um, you still do that? Yeah, we, we try to insist on people getting espresso in a, during COVID, of course, that's been a problem, but yeah. I mean, I'll, we always try to get people to drink espresso in uh, a Frihir cup. Uh, they don't always sit down, but they'll stand and drink it in the Frihir cup, which is great. David Labastour, when I told him this philosophy and this is where my focus was gonna be, and we focused maybe three years on this, he said, John, it's brilliant. He said, at MEC, we spent almost three years focusing on ice climbers. On ice what? Ice climbers. The people that climb ice walls. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ice climbers, okay? Mm -hmm. So I said, really? I said, that's really bizarre. He said, well, okay, when you think about this, he said, if an ice climber uses that sleeping bag and that tent um, and that rain jacket, it's certainly good enough for Vancouver weather. But we have ice climbers with wearing our gear and people go, that guy's wearing it. It must be good. And so we spend a ton of marketing focus on getting our espresso perfect and asking people if they would give it to them. We'd say, will you try the espresso? And um, it, was a, it was a very interesting thing. But I wouldn't say, I mean, now, because... 25 years ago, espresso isn't what it is today. Like a lot of people have really good espresso now. Like mm -hmm. there's some great espresso out there. But 25 years ago, most of the espresso in this city was shit. And when you compared it to Starbucks, which was a dark roast, espresso made from a dark roast is, is not very good at all. It's unpalatable. You have to put sugar in it. Yeah. You can get an espresso that's really wonderful. Uh, anyway, so that was our one of our defining points is how we do something special. But... Today, you're saying, what's the low-hanging fruit? There's still <clears throat> a tremendous amount of coffee shops that open up that get their food from somebody else because they don't, they don't have the expertise. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's definitely a barrier for entry. It's definitely a barrier because you need a kitchen, you need equipment, it's, it's expensive. But if you, to your point earlier, I want to open a thriving coffee business, well, then you better have a thriving food business. So that gives a reason for some, and what I'm talking about is, you know, don't offer Thai food and pizza, offer things that, that go well with coffee, you know, which is mostly pastry or anything with butter, you know, like butter goes and whipped cream go really well with coffee. So, yeah, totally. so um, what I'm hearing is, you know, once you've really uh, zeroed in on a, a, a phenomenal product um, that, uh, that you know you've you've poured a lot of development into um well okay so 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 let's say you have that that great product and let's say you have um a, you know a food element that works really well mm -hmm. there's there's then this like next level which is actually selling it and um and I'm I'm curious with you because I, I know that you spent some time as a as a regional sales manager at, at Nestle. Yeah. And so I'm curious both about uh, what what impact that experience had on JJ Bean's uh, success, 
and and also just how you how you approach you know the the selling of it how do you how do you sell as much of it as you possibly can if that makes sense it does make sense i say the biggest single thing i learned from nestle nestle is a brand machine like they everything they do is about brand it's not about people it's about spreadsheets and brands and so i did learn a lot about spreadsheets which was very helpful uh, every decision at Nestle has to be justified by a spreadsheet. Hmm. So I got very good with Excel. You couldn't just say, I think we should do this. Uh, you know, my gut tells me, mm-hmm. uh, we're not interested in your gut. Show me the numbers. Oh, oh, oh okay. We, we got we to pause there. Okay. Because so I, I, as, as you know, I, I work in marketing and um, probably one of the things that triggers my temper uh, yeah. Or I, you know, I'm work, working on my, you know, I don't, don't want to be an angry person, but I, I almost every time get triggered when someone says something like, ah, oh, just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Or it's like, I just don't feel like it's, it's on brand. And I'm just like, what, that is the most useless thing you can say. Uh, like, do you have brand guidelines? Do you have something that I can actually look at? Or, or can you back up that, that feeling with a number or a metric or something that we can sink our teeth into and move forward as opposed to the conversation stopping at your fucking gut feeling? So, oh, I'm sorry. I, no, you would, you would like Nestle because <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's well, what Nestle would say. Like, we don't care about your feeling. We don't I, care about your gut. They would say, shit. Tell me why you believe that and show me the spreadsheet in terms of how much profit we're going to make as a result of that decision. So it it was interesting. I mean, I do believe the thing about uh, the gut is a lot of people can come up with an inspirational thought, you know, which is from the gut. You know, they woke up and had a divine uh, dream that God spoke to them in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And you know what? There's been some great ideas come from that. But as you say, there has to be some way to, to legitimize that unless you're willing just to gamble the money. Um, so uh, I guess the biggest thing I learned about a brand, which Nestle taught me was, he said, you know, the number of flashes that your brain has to see something before it registered, I used to know the number, but it's something like 5,000. Wow. So if you ask somebody, okay, how do you drive to work every day, right? And you, they, and how long you been doing that? And often you can get someone will say like, oh, I've been doing that for, for ten years. And you go, okay, well that's you know, three that's three thousand three thousand times that you've seen that. So what do you think about that? Um, uh, what do you think about that little tie place on, you know, commercial and. Uh, or on, you know, on Drake and Pacific or something. You go, but you drive by there. You've, you've driven by there 3,000 times in the last 10 years. Yeah, but I don't even know where that is. No, but you drive by there every day. How come you don't know where it is? Well, I know where it is. I just can't visualize the sign. And that's why you have to do as much as you can to make it so that your signage or something that you do sticks out so it visually doesn't become a blur as people drive by. So I met with a guy who was really good. I think he's since passed, but uh, I said, uh, what, 
I'm going to paint my building. What color should I paint my building? And it, I said, I, what are you thinking about? He, I said, well, you know, I don't know, gray. He goes, John, I want to show you something. And so he took a picture. He painted the building gray. And he said, I want you to stand across the street here. You've got a gray street. And there's a you know cloudy day. You've got a gray street. You've got a cloudy, you know, cloudy weather. How much does your building stand out? In fact, it blends in with everything. Mm-hmm. Make it a color that stands out. Do something so that the eye is caught by the fact it's different. So that's why you would do, you know, if you're driving in a neighborhood and you see an orange house, you go, whoa. I mean, that's awful. But if anybody said to you, hey, do you know the orange house down on 15th Street? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but so that's the first thing is making it so somehow people recognize that impression. Mm-hmm. The second thing is make 3,000 impressions because you're not always going to have someone, you know, driving by your store every day. And sorry, that's 3,000 impressions on one person. Yes. Okay. So how do you do that? Well. You get your logo, and number one, your logo has to be good. It has to be memorable. It has to, and this, I think so many people make this mistake, your logo should have what you do in the logo. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to be the Nike swoosh, okay? Mm-hmm. So they go to the Nike swoosh, but Nike took, you know, 30 years before their logo became the swoosh because Ultimately, every and a character or a picture is more memorable. So, I mean, the man from Glad or uh, the, you know, I can't really think of it, but, but, but uh, the Tony the Tiger from Esso or, you know, you know ultimately, KFC. yeah, right. So ultimately, an image is more memorable than a word. But to get to that point is a long journey and it's not 3000 images it's 20000 images for people to get that association between um the swoosh and nike and tennis shoes or, mm-hmm. or any kind of shoes so if nike uh, and I, I don't even know if this is true i mean maybe i'm totally off base but i'm assuming that somehow when nike started they had shoes in their word or that there was a something about shoes mm-hmm. so if and i went to a number of people i showed them my logo and i asked and the best thing to do is just ask strangers and and i love talking to strangers so i remember when i actually came up with the name of jgb um, i was with a buddy was well i'm still at nestle and we were at the palomino grill in seattle we were both wearing suits we were at a convention there and he drew up a little logo for me and my nickname was JJ. So he said, you know, JJ Bean's got a nice ring to it. Why don't we do JJ Bean? So I he said, but we've got to do some market studies. So we went in this bar, had a, you know, old fashioned or something in our hand and just went to people and say, hey, we're just a couple of marketing guys. And we're just wondering what you thought about JJ Bean coffee. And we got out of 10, we approached 10 people Six of them had heard of it. One of them said it tasted amazing. Hmm. And when we then told them, look, JJ Bean is not a real company. 
Oh, right, right. L.L. Bean. It's L.L. Bean. That's what I know. Mm-hmm. And so brand confusion is a good thing is what I'm getting at. Really? Huh. When you first start. So you're like, you kind of piggyback off of L.L. Bean. Yes. Oh, that's, 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 that's clever. I, I like that. Um, but we had a problem, of course, as soon as we wanted to copyright our name, trademark our name, L.L. Bean was all over it. Mm-hmm. They, they sent me legal letters. And do, you, uh, do you put your negotiation skills to, uh, to use there? I did. Uh, the end result was, you know, they didn't sue me the amount of money that they were going to sue me, but I had to agree not to sell uh, any clothing. So that's why I'm going to see JJ being clothing. Although we're looking at doing JJ clothing. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I think that that's, that's really cool. so, so going further. So we're JJ Bean uh, Coffee Roasters is our full name. But mm-hmm. uh, all of our branding recently has been moving just to JJ. Okay. So, because that's how people, that's what people call us. Hey, you want to meet a JJ? No one says, do you want to meet a JJ Bean Coffee Roasters? They all say JJ. And now, 25 years ago, if we put JJ on our trucks, people wouldn't know what that was. Even if we put JJ Bean, they wouldn't know with, is that coffee beans or garbanzo beans or jelly beans? Like, how do we know it's coffee beans? So it's all I'm saying is your logo, in my mind, should say your name and it should have coffee or shoes or, you know, Thai restaurant. Yeah. You, yeah, early on, it has to be specific to what you do. And as you, you know, as your brand gravity grows, you can eventually yeah. simplify it. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think that that makes sense. Like, for, for example, I have a company called uh, Nimble Bar Company. And, yeah. um, and uh, it's like this bird, and it swoops in and it's like drinking from a wine bottle, the eye is a wine bottle. So I, I think it's a good image, but maybe eventually, it'll just be the bird, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. And so the other way we got 3,000 images, uh, number one, we put our logo on absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. So our logo was on our windows, our logo was on all our cups, our logo was on all our vehicles, even my personal vehicles. I did everything possible to get my logo everywhere in terms of, and then I would talk to neighbors about, hey, you want to do some co-branding stuff? You know, like, I'll focus on your brand and you focus on my brand and give each other, you know, deals. The guerrilla marketing stuff that we did a lot of was sidewalk chalk. So we started maybe a block or two from our stores and we would draw funny things on the sidewalk and then an arrow and then funny things on the sidewalk that people would go, what the hell is this? And then what didn't say JJ Bean this way, it was like, this funny art that people would just follow just because they didn't have a clue who would go to all this effort. And it was a lot of effort because of course it only lasted, you know, a day at most, mm-hmm. but I had somebody that was good at it. And so I paid them to go do art and it was crazy how it worked. Restaurant owners, operators, and managers, before we continue with the episode, I want to ask you a question. Do you know if your marketing is working? Most restaurant owners are relying solely on organic social media and word of mouth marketing. While these are both powerful, they ultimately leave the growth of your restaurant to chance. You can't control algorithms and you certainly can't control what people do. 
but you can use a system that will have a huge impact over time. I'd love to show you the guest magnet method. It's a simple but cohesive system that will accelerate the growth of your restaurant in a way that you can measure. It is backed by ROI, a return on your investment. If you want to learn about the most powerful way to grow your restaurant sales this year, send an email to kyle at guestgetter.co with magnet in the subject line and I'll get you all the details. All right, back to the show. Were there other guerrilla marketing methods or, or tactics that you used early on? What, what were some of those? Uh, well, that one was good. You put signs on uh, telephone posts, you know, until the city gets you in trouble. Um, we did a bunch of fundraising at schools where we basically gave them the product free, uh, but they could make money at it. So we, we think we highlighted the first couple of years, and this was the marketing person I hired, um, and that worked amazing. We, we helped raise a whole bunch of money in the community um, by, you know, like if, if we were selling coffee in the stores for 12 bucks, we give it to them for seven bucks and then they could make $5, um, which was way more that they could make on selling chocolate bars or meat or any of that other stuff and way easier because everybody wanted coffee. Well, we got, we probably sold in that year of that marketing campaign, probably 50,000 bags. So my old concept is ultimately you want your brand sitting in someone's kitchen because coffee is going to be there for, you know, a pound of coffee. Most people take a week, five or six days to go through it. So for five or six days, your brand is front and center with people. So if we could, we could make that happen, it was worth basically losing money uh, on all of the fundraising. But on top of that, we developed a tremendous amount of goodwill with uh, all of these schools and, you know, BC Boys Choir. And there was like a whole bunch of organizations we did this with. And they loved it. They made a lot of money. And we got our name out there. And that was far cheaper than spending money on radio or print or any of those things, which are just garbage as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, actually, I'd love to. I'd love to hear more about that because I and I'm. I think that we're probably getting to that. Um, you know, before we got on the call, you uh, you, you sort of alluded to the idea that you're you're, you're kind of anti-marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, yet, you know, I all this all this stuff we're talking about, I think, is just like very you know um, smart ways to to put yourself in front of people. Right. Um, could could you tell me more about a what you mean when you say you're you're anti-marketing and uh, b you know why you think like print ads and radio is uh, why you think it's garbage. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I've had so many guys over the years, radio people um, in particular and TV who want to sell me an ad campaign. And they told, you know, they would present to me, they say, okay, it's, it's um, $50,000, but we are going to hit, you know, a million and a half viewers for you. I said, okay. So I said, what will that do for my business? They said, well, we think that that'll raise your business by 10 or 15%. I said, that's amazing. Okay. I'm in. You're in? I said, actually, let's do a hundred grand. I go a hundred grand. Yeah. Because you're going to put it in writing that my business is going to go up 10 or 15% and I'm not going to pay you unless it does. And they're like, no, no. And I said, well, we're talking about integrity of what you're selling then you just told me it'd go up 10 or 15%. So are you just 
blowing smoke up my ass? Or is it going to go up 10 or 15%? Because actually, you're going to be way better off giving me 100000 than you are 50000 mm-hmm. You're going to get $50,000 more. And my business is going to go up another, you know, that much more because of it. <laughs> but no one ever went for it, Kyle. I don't know why. They all said no. Well, it... it- it kind of reminds me of uh, what we what we see a lot of today with, you know, like social media stuff and, and people uh, pitching you on their social media services. They say, well, we'll uh, we'll increase your likes and your follows. And um, a mentor of mine always says, he's like, I can't deposit likes and follows into my bank account. So it's just, you know, it, it's kind of like the, the modern day equivalent of the, the radio or the TV. Um, you know, I think I just so so much of that advertising is frustrating to folks because they have no idea if it's working or if it's doing anything. Right. So it, it, feel, it always feels like it's an expense instead of, um, you know. And I believe it is actually. I think the, uh, we've had a, a tremendous amount of uh, press. Uh, I mean, if you just you know, Google myself, like the number of times that the press has called me and I generally will call them, I'll send them an email of something interesting. So that's my other kind of marketing is that I'll just send them an interesting thing. Yeah. Like PR, right. I mean, um, I, I got, I got to just give a, um, a little, a little tip for anyone who have you ever heard of, um, help a reporter out Harrow? No. So if, if, if any, you know, any business owner out there wants to get more, uh, press, there's this thing you can go to called help a reporter out. And there, there are all these reporters all over the world who are like starving for content and for, um, you know, input from experts or business owners like yourself. And, and you just check your email a few times a day and, um, you can, you know, you can find someone who's, who's looking for your insight. And, and that's just a, a way that is effective at getting that PR. That is interesting. That's great. Good tip. So, Okay, well, I, I want to be respectful of, of your time here, and I and I, I really appreciate you coming on. This this has been uh, awesome. Uh, so I have uh, just uh, a couple. Here's my here's my burning question. Uh, I think I I read somewhere that you you used to drink your coffee with cream and sugar, and then your dad or your grandpa or yeah. someone basically slapped you on the wrist and said that that's just unacceptable, John. So I'm wondering if you have any tips for those who drink coffee with cream, sugar, or other nonsense, I, I am, I'm that person, by the way. Uh, and, and they, they want to start drinking it black. What would you, how would you guide them? Yeah, there's no way other than cold Turkey, but it is an amazing thing. It is really the only way to discern coffee mm-hmm. um, is to drink it black. If someone is, I guess if you're drinking sugar and cream, just buy the cheapest coffee you can find because it won't make a difference. You will just end up, you know, like Tim Hortons is probably the best product out there because uh, for sugar and cream drinkers, because they used uh, 12% uh, cream. Hmm. So the cream is very rich there and it makes their coffee taste better than anybody else's. I, I have, I have had a number of, uh, of uh, double doubles in my day. This was way back when now, now I've, I'm, I've graduated to just cream. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, really, the only way to do it is cold turkey. I have no advice otherwise. Um, uh, oh, I know. Uh, stay up late and get up early. Okay? Stay up yeah. late, get up early, and you have to drink coffee. 
It'll just keep, only fuel that'll uh, that'll keep you awake. Yeah, I mean, other than cocaine. So, I mean, if you're you know off drugs, then just drink, like, get get up, like be sleep deprived, and like I was a student at UBC when I learned how to drink black coffee. What'd you study? Uh well, I was in social work. Oh, that's right, that's right. That's what I was. Uh, so arts and stuff, but um, yeah, it, it takes about two months, unfortunately, hmm. just a long time. And then you realize it's it's like a whole world opens to you. Um, so it's worth it. It's worth it. It's totally worth it. I mean, it's, it's just like, you know, I guess the other thing that's the only thing to compare it to is, is, uh, you know, you're in the re restaurant business, but if all you ever drink is big Australian Shiraz or big California cabs, um, because that's what you're, you want. The thing is to go off those for two months mm -hmm. and only drink, you know, a Pinot or Grenache or, or something that is extremely more light delicate. And, and delicate so that you get um, your, your taste buds develop this, this palate. Mm -hmm. And, but you can only do it if it's not being drowned out all the time by these big things. Um, and I still do appreciate a big cab or big Shiraz. I'm a big, I drink a lot of wine. Um, but, um, I, I can appreciate a, a Pinot very much. And I mean, my go-to wine is usually like a Cote d'Aron shot enough to pop or, um, a Brunello, but, um, yeah, anyway. Well, same thing. That's a perfect segue for our, our rapid fire round. Are, are you up for a quick rapid fire round? Yeah. Um, well, okay. But before I ask, uh, is, is there anything in this interview so far that I've, I, I, I haven't asked you, but I probably should have. Um, I guess there's something, uh, if we, it's really what I care most about my company is the culture that we've created. And it was, that was something that was like always out of my grasp. Like, how do you, how do you create culture? Like, how do you create a mission statement that really means something? And that has been uh, a journey for me. And I, it's always a process. You never um, arrive, but we have a, a culture at JJ Bean, which is unlike anybody else. And it makes our, our, and I guess it's kind of like my dad with the, the donuts and the Copenhagen's and the stuff. But my staff is really sold out on us. They love our company. But we have a four pillar, um, four pillars of our culture, and that is um, coffee, customer service, uh, food, and spaces. So those four things, everything in our company is based on. So our our mission statement is uh, we exist to honor people through outstanding. Uh, coffee, customer service, food, and amazing spaces. And then our four pillars, as I described, and then all our, we do an audit every month to audit each of those four pillars. We give bonuses based on hitting those, whereas most companies do bonuses based on hitting numbers. Like not, Nestle was all about profit. So you didn't hit the profit, you didn't get the bonus. But us, it's all about, we have this gold standard of what we expect in these four areas. If you hit this, these four areas, you get your bonus. Because we believe if we hit, if we are a company that models the best in each of those areas, the sales will come, the profits will come. And so it's, it's been a, 
pretty amazing thing. And so every one of our decisions comes from that base, from those four things. And then we also have a really different leadership style, which is a huge part of our culture in that we want to honor people by hearing people. The best way to honor people is to hear them, let them have a voice. So we close our stores down once a month for a staff meeting. We have a wholesale meeting every two weeks. We have a retail meeting every two weeks. We have a bakery meeting every two weeks. We have what's called our SLT meeting every two weeks, our senior leadership team. There's five of us on that team representing all the different areas of our company. We don't move ahead. I, I create the agenda, but we um, don't vote on things. If we don't have unanimity, if all five of us don't agree, we don't move ahead. Hmm. And that style of business. Uh, and then even, okay, so then let's say we're, creating a new breakfast sandwich. We all have to agree it's outstanding. From there, it goes to the retail managers who then have to agree that there's not, it's 21 managers, so you can't get unanimity, but we get, the, we get their feedback on it. And then we'll look at that and go, yeah, you're right. You know, that you're right, it would be better like this. So then we, we tweak it and then we launch it. So, uh, and we do the same thing with coffees. Uh, we have a the weekly, every Wednesday, we have a, a, that's our cupping team and there's a retail rep, there's wholesale rep, which is me, and then three focused coffee quality people. So the five of us make decisions every week. So it's this decision-making and getting input that has created a culture of people wanting to make changes in our company all the time, which makes it very exciting. Um, anyway, so that's all I wanted to add. No, I, I love it, and uh, it um, it also it it must be very clarifying for for everybody there too. And uh, and I think I forget who said it, but um, pe people people follow clarity. They don't um, if there's chaos, they they get lost. And yeah, and, yeah. No, there's a number of people. I always say there's there's true freedom in a structure. Mm -hmm. and if there's no structure. There's chaos. Right. So if we all have a box that we live in in our lives. And we go, okay, this is the outer parameters. I know, you know, take a marriage, for example. I know, you know my wife might be upset if I go play basketball with the boys, but it's within that box. Outside of the box is having an affair. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very clear structure, right? Yeah. I know that within this structure, I still have, I'm still okay. Mm -hmm. uh, outside is lying. Outside is doing something, you know, if I speak behind my wife, you know, like, I disrespect her behind her back. That's clearly outside the box. So knowing what's in the box and what's outside the box is really good for our life. And so at JJB, we have a level system. That's the other thing. So we have four levels and it's very clear when you're hired what it takes to go to each level. We provide training for each of those levels. And then at each level, you say, I'm ready for the test. And then Grady, our coffee quality guy, comes in and he tests them uh, along with Spencer. Um, and then if they pass, they move up between 50 cents and a dollar, mm -hmm. and then they can go to the next level. And then at level three, they can have the option to become a supervisor. At level four, they, be, they go into the pool of managers. So every one of our managers at JJB has come up from level one, two, three, and four. Every one of them. That's so awesome. thank you, Cam. Yeah, it's an awesome system. Like we, we have an ongoing training academy, basically. Uh, I mean, all our managers are 
exceptional. They're all level four. They can they can taste a coffee blind and tell you if it's from Colombia or from Africa. You know, it's just it's amazing. Wow. Wow. Okay. They're better than me, actually. <laughs> um, okay. So, shall uh, shall we do this rapid fire? Sure. Okay. What's your favorite alcoholic drink? Old fashioned. What's your favorite bourbon? Uh, I oh, depends. I like Booker's a lot. Um, oh, that's tough. I got a whole bunch of bourbons in my cupboard. Um, yeah, I'm gonna have to pass on that one. <laughs> uh, tool or resource that's had the biggest impact on your success? Tools or resource? Yeah, tool or resource could be like a, a book or something. Oh, or a, or a yeah, Eh, I've done both. I've done lots of courses. I've done lots of books, but because uh, life experience would also be in there. Uh, a combo, but I'd, I'd say resources, I guess. Do you, do you have uh, one top book recommendation you can make for the audience? Um, I should look that up. Uh, I'd say one author. He's done a whole bunch of stuff. Patrick Lencioni. Hmm. Patrick Lenz, L-E- C-C-I-O-N-I. Uh, okay, I have to research him, never, never heard of him. Um, okay, final question. Say the government gives you $50,000 to grow JJ Bean. How do you spend that money? Oh, I open another location for sure. <laughs> you only take 50 grand? No, but I mean, any kind of money. I, I don't need much push to open another location. 50 grand wouldn't do much for me. Uh, so I, if it's just 50 grand, uh, it wouldn't, I couldn't do anything. With 50 grand. It cost me about 500 grand to open the location. Um, but the government has been very generous. I mean, wage subsidy, we wouldn't have survived this COVID thing without the wage subsidy. Yeah. Um, so it's been good. 50 grand. I mean, a piece of equipment is always interesting. Um, but I couldn't buy a roaster for 50 grand, uh, roaster would be almost 150 grand. Uh, uh, a delivery truck is 110 grand. 50 grand doesn't do much for me, pal. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, so you need to change the question going forward. <laughs> yeah. Or, or yeah, maybe I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll work on it. Um, but John, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for, for joining me today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, is there anywhere you'd like to, to send people or uh, any shout out you'd, you'd like to make before we hop off here? Um. I, we have some tremendous wholesale customers that, you know, really had a tough time. People are still been buying coffee during COVID, but not a lot of them have, you know, been going out or they've been doing takeout, but takeout, as you know, is nowhere near as profitable as dining in because of the alcohol. Uh, one guy that, um, one group that I really loved, um, um, well, two groups, uh, I'll say Flying Pig, go to the Flying Pig and support them, especially Gastown, because Gastown has really been suffering because of tourists, and go to Salvia Volpe and Latana and Pepinos. Amazing spot. Yeah. Love it. Okay, John. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Cheers. Okay, bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Guest Getter. I'm your host, Kyle Guilfoyle. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. As always, you can head over to guestgetter.co to check out the resources in this episode's show notes and sign up for our weekly newsletter. That is it for today. We'll see you next time.